So Philippians chapter 1 this morning, Philippians chapter 1, it's, it's, you can look at this as kind of a, a precursor to, a, to, to a, a Christmas Eve message because it contains one of the subjects of the Christmas message, joy. We're going to look at verses 12 through 30 this morning and it's about Paul's purpose, his expectations, and his message. One of the surest ways to find out the level of a Christian's maturity is see what it is that ruffles their feathers. To see what takes away their joy. Paul's maturity level is really obvious in our passage here. And he makes it clear that tough, unpleasant, painful, and even life-threatening circumstances didn't rob him of his joy. Instead, his circumstances caused his joy to increase. Verses 12 through 18, Paul speaks about his purpose to the Philippians. And then verse 19 through 26, he speaks of his expectations for the uh, Philippians. And then verses 27 through 30, he gives his message to the Philippians. So let's begin with verse 12. And Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, so he's talking to Christians, his fellow brothers and sisters, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, Paul says... You know, I, I know I'm in prison, I know I'm in chains, but you know what? It was all God's plan. You know, when we find ourselves in chains, figuratively speaking, we question God. What are you doing? Paul's purpose in life was to spread the gospel. That was his call, to spread the word of God. Nothing else mattered to Paul. It was the most important thing to him in his life. That was his goal. After he had his vision on the road to Damascus, everything else became a lesser priority to him when it came to his Lord. God had captured his body, his soul, and his mind in Christ. Only the truths that had to do with Jesus were important in his and this life. Salvation from sin, a home in heaven, a relationship with Jesus, life in a new dimension, a spiritual dimension, a life driven by a new power where the wonderful truth that everybody needed to know about. All of these things, was, was, was Paul, this was Paul's goal in life, to make Jesus known to as many as he could about these things. Paul knew that Jesus, who was now sitting at the right hand of the Father, was in complete control. All matters of time and space were in his hands. So whatever you're dealing with today, keep in mind, it's a part of God's plan. He's in control. It didn't happen by a stroke of bad luck. It didn't by, happen by accident. It didn't happen by chance. All the different things that happen and, and have happened are a part of the big puzzle of life that one day is going to be revealed. God's going to show us the big picture. 
And that's going to result in his praise and thanksgiving for eternity. Paul was a prisoner in chains. So really, Paul's freedom was really the length of his chains. <laughs> How are four, three feet, four feet, five feet? I don't know. Paul had been used to freedom, going wherever he wanted, doing whatever he wanted. And he had been driven by this overpowering need to travel to the furthest parts of the earth to make Jesus known. And Paul had been very successful in doing that. Years before he made plans to go to Rome, people flocked to Rome from all over the world to visit Paul. It was the most important city in the world. Paul would turn that city into a place that would become the main stage for evangelizing, for missions, for Bible teaching. When people think about Rome, they wouldn't think about Caesar. they think about Jesus. Paul would go to the synagogues there, he'd, and many Jews would come, would come and get saved. He'd stir up the Christians. He'd fire up the church. He'd win souls for Christ. He'd encourage Christians. He'd take the city. And then from then on, he would take the world for Jesus. Paul's plans for evangelism, they weren't just to you know, go about town, you know, to hit the neighborhoods. He was to take it to the world. His vision was worldwide. But he was in chains. How's he going to fulfill his vision? How's he going to do that? Any other man would have questioned God's ways. Lord, you call me to the ministry. You want me to preach the gospel. You want me to take it all around the world. Uh, you see these chains I'm wearing? They don't go very far. What's up with that? He might have been troubled over his inability. Can't do anything. Look what man's done to me, God. And he could possibly get bitter, very bitter. But not Paul. Because Paul knows that his chains were God's plan for him. And he knew that God didn't make mistakes. That God's way is perfect. Paul knew God was in complete control. Paul looked at his chains as a challenge, not an end. He says, okay, I'm in these chains. It makes it a little more difficult to do what I'm called to do. But you know what? It's not the end of the world. If he, couldn't, if, if he couldn't go in person to preach the gospel, he'd write. He'd send letters. He'd pray. He couldn't go to the people, but you know what? The people could come to him. He could still have a powerful impact on God's plans and purposes for Rome through the affections of the people that loved him and that he ministered to. So Paul would have a power greater than any ruler on earth. Look at verse 13. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul's chains or hindrances were clearly fruitful. They were productive. They were beneficial. Now his chains, those are, you know, that, those are hindrances. So, you know, whatever hindrances you may be experiencing... They're productive. They can be productive. When Paul got to Rome, he was turned over to the palace guard, and every day he was chained to soldiers. 
So Paul made friends very easily. <laughs> Paul made friends with those Roman soldiers. He won them to Jesus. So in that respect, his chains did further the gospel. Think about it. How else could Paul have been able to witness personally to these men? These members of the, of the palace guard. You know, if, if Paul was free and he came to Rome like a Jewish missionary or, or he came like an ordinary visitor to Rome and he tried to witness to them, do you think they would have come to any of his meetings? Do you think they would have come to listen to Paul preaching in some market square? Probably not. But for months and months and long hours of time, these guards were chained to him. They had to be his company. They were probably drawn to him by his courtesy and his charisma. That's what draws people. They watched him under the most stressful circumstances and thought, how can this man be so charismatic and, and joyful? They probably listened to him pray. They heard him dictate letters. They attended his conferences with groups and individuals who, who packed the jail from, uh, from all parts of the city and the world. So the gospel spread all through the palace, and we can imagine the guards' opinions of Paul. They can, we can imagine all these guards that were, that were throughout the day and weeks and months who were chained to him, you know, discussing, debating what Paul had talked to them about. They probably had some fiery discussions in the barracks as well as in the homes. Look at verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Enthusiasm creates the enthusiasm. Paul's tireless commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ motivated others to get it out there, to get going with the word of God. People need a leader, and they need an inspiring example, somebody who will, you know, who will get out in front and set the pace. I love what John Phillips wrote about the secret success of the Israeli army, and especially in light of today. He said, one of the secrets of the success of the dynamic Israeli army is its leaders. Anyone who is not a commando or a paratrooper does not qualify to be one of its officers. The Israelis have removed the word forward from their military vocabulary and replaced it with the words, follow me. Their leaders didn't order them to move forward. They ordered them to follow me. Those are leaders. Leaders who are willing to take the first step have helped make this army, in spite of its many handicaps, a power to be reckoned with in the Middle East. Those are leaders. Paul was that kind of man. He was the kind of guy who said, follow me. He was a born leader, always out in front. But the Lord was always in front of him. Paul's followers, man, they caught the vision when they saw Paul. When, he saw, when they saw he had one goal in mind, he was single-minded, undivided, wholehearted, unrestrainable, irresistible passion for the glory of God, for the souls of lost people, and for the good and the development of the Lord's church. 
The Roman Christians saw Paul in his chains fearlessly telling others about Jesus. And they caught on fire. If he could win people, so many souls for Jesus while he was chained up to a, to a Roman soldier, imagine what those who were free could do. So Paul's boldness in his chains and his obvious sincerity and his tireless works, his contagious enthusiasm, it kind of made the, 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 the caution of the other Christians, the, it kind of melted away their, their caution that you know, they were kind of hesitant maybe and revive their commitment to his Roman brothers. Verses 14, uh, verse 14. Again, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some people are just naturally, you know, timid. Some have inferiority complexes. Some shy away. It's hard for them to tell others about Jesus Christ. Other people are bold, they're forceful, they're outgoing, and they're not embarrassed. Others are willing to tell others about Jesus, but they're careful. They choose their words carefully. Kind of maybe beat around the bush, not say it out directly. Jesus is the Lord. Because they might get persecuted, ridiculed, or something else. Paul's example can put backbone into all types of people. God always has people like Paul around to motivate other people. People's confidence was renewed when they saw Paul, when they saw him evangelizing even though he was in chains. And Paul wasn't afraid of the Roman authorities. He spoke, he spoke Jesus. He wasn't worried about the charges that were brought against him and he wasn't about, worried about any more charges that could be brought against him. Paul was totally outspoken even with the presence of a soldier chained to him who might be able to go back to his commander and say, hey, you ought to hear what Paul's saying about you know, our governor, our, our country, or whatever. You know. Paul wasn't afraid. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Paul says, you know, they, you know, some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motive. Here in verse 15 where it speaks about preaching the gospel out of goodwill was to preach it out of a sincere desire for the good of others. But it, it, it's not referring here to just the desire to see men saved, that is the preaching out of goodwill, but also for the desire to encourage and bless Paul's heart. Like the Lord during his earthly ministry, Paul had more than his share of critics. And most of them uh, were from the Jewish and pagan religious establishments. And then the church. It soon had its critics, but inside the church. People inside the church, bad-mouthing their leaders. And it was usually those leaders who were the most godly and, and most effective. And one of the most discouraging experiences for a servant of God is being falsely accused by his fellow believers and especially co-workers in the church you expect that from those on the outside you expect to be criticized by an unbeliever but not by another believer and that's when it really hurts when your ministry is slandered misrepresented and wrongly criticized by fellow preachers and teachers of the gospel and that's exactly what paul was facing in rome where some of the church leaders opposed him 
Those that were opposing, they were preaching Jesus, it says, even out of envy and strife. You know, it's sad how much envy and rivalry there is among leaders in the Lord's work, even in ministry. Look at verses 16 and 17. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Those who are preaching with a wrong motive, Paul says, they're, trying, they're, they're hoping to make things worse for me. The words here, not sincerely, it carries the idea of a precious metal being mixed with a low-grade metal. And these preachers were mixing the pure gold of the word of God, the gospel, with the low-grade mixture of their jealousy. The word affliction here suggests the painful friction of a prisoner's chains against his ankles and wrists. And you know, many times you've seen, you know, in movies it shows them where they've got the wrists, here are the chains on the wrists of their ankles, and they're all raw and bloody because of the, of the wearing, the friction on the, on the skin. Well, that's what the word affliction means here. They're trying to cause this, this affliction, this pain to Paul. And these preachers are hoping that their success would really frustrate Paul. You know, they hope that, that here's Paul, he's in jail, he's, on, he's in chains. They're hoping that Paul looks at them and sees them free, going whatever, wherever they want to preach the gospel, doing whatever they want. And they're hoping that this, you know, annoys Paul and it frustrates Paul. You know, they're hoping that, they're, they're hoping that Paul sees their success, that it would really upset Paul. They hope that, that, that Paul seeing them free compared to his chains would aggravate him. And it's sad to think that, you know, anybody could be spe- that, spe- uh, that mean-spirited, but there's plenty. There are people who enjoy other people's problems. But again, they didn't know Paul. Paul was much bigger than they were, and he ignored them. And it's probably more like he prayed for them in spite of what they were doing. You see, Paul took his pleasure from those who hoped to encourage him by helping him spread the gospel. Paul had his small-minded enemies trying to annoy him, but he also had his kind-hearted friends trying to, you know, encourage him. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul rejoiced no matter if the gospel was preached to him or was preached to help him or to make him more miserable. Jesus was preached. To Paul, that's all that mattered. And that brought joy to his heart. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't you know, endorsing or condoning the evil preaching of these other preachers. He was just happy that whenever he saw, he saw Jesus preached, now, this is a hard attitude to have. It's an attitude that rejoices when other, you know, other th- uh, churches thrive. Beside, you know, the, when other churches thrive beside your church. When other ministries thrive or even do better than your own. And there are people preaching the gospel today whose motives are questionable. You know, some of them seem to be building their own kingdoms. Spending a lot of time, you know, asking for money and then spending it on questionable things. But the gospel is being preached. God's word is going out, even though questionable in an unworthy way. 
we can thank God anyway. We can pray for these people. God will bless his word any way he pleases. That's the only thing God promised to bless was his word. He's still sovereign and and the Holy Spirit is still the Lord of the harvest. I mean, we would have never thought of using a man like Balaam, who was a psychic, to deliver a divine message. But God used him. Jonah had a terrible attitude towards those of Nineveh. Those he was to preach to. He had an unforgiving spirit. He was bitter. He was prejudiced. We wouldn't have blessed his preaching. But God did. God gave his blessing. After David committed adultery and murder, we would have never read another psalm. We went or, or, or blessed another psalm written by David, but God did. Paul said, in spite of all this that these evil preachers, he said, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? They're preaching Jesus. However they're doing it, whatever their intent is, however they're trying to get to me, I'm just happy they're preaching Jesus. Paul selflessly overlooked the mean spirit of jealous men They were jealous of Paul. And he rejoiced that the gospel was being preached. Because see, it wasn't about him. It was about the Lord Jesus. You couldn't quench Paul's spirit. You couldn't stop a man like this. No one could get Paul down. He was a man with just one passion, and it was the gospel, and that's what mattered to him. Paul, uh, Pastor Chuck always used to tell us, keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus, don't worry about anybody else or anything else. He focused his attention on the preaching, not the preachers. So when anybody exalted Jesus Christ and souls were one, the only thing Paul could say was, praise the Lord. People are getting saved. And then in verses 19 to 26, Paul speaks to the Philippians about his expectations. Look at verse 19. For, no, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The word salvation here doesn't speak of gospel salvation, but of physical well-being. In other words, Paul's hoping that, that all of this is going to get him released from prison. Paul, be, Paul believes the increase of preaching, the gospel would help to deliver him from, his, from, uh, from prison. He believed he would be pardoned and let go like other times that he'd been in prison. Paul also believes that the, this, this deliverance is the result of prayers of the saints. He says here, of supply. The word supply means the help of the Holy Spirit. So you have two things here to help in Paul's deliverance from prison, the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we've heard this often. You know, you might share with somebody, you know, you're going through a difficult time or whatever it might be, you know, well-meaning, well-meaning people often say to friends, you know, when they're going through these times, hey, hey, bro, everything's going to work out. Chin up. But what's that based on? You're just being op- optimistic. You're just being positive thinking. That's really not very assuring or satisfying. But you see, Paul's optimism was based on the solid and substantial spiritual truths of prayer and the Holy Spirit. That you can depend on. Verse 20. 
He said, according to my earnest expectation and hope. Notice, Paul had an earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, uh, whether by life or by death. Paul's body was dedicated to honoring Jesus Christ. So many people dedicate their body to fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. They do unnatural things to their bodies to bring attention to themselves. Paul exhorted believers in Romans 12:1 to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. To honor Jesus with your body means the body will often be subjected to suffering. But we shouldn't complain because Jesus suffered a lot in his body for us so that we might be honored in salvation. Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Everybody lives for something or someone. And if people were really honest, a lot of them would sum up their goals in in their life, you know, like this. For me to live is pleasure. For me to live is wealth. For me to live is power. For me to live is fame. Our main, should, our main goal should be, as Peter said, show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul said, hey, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should be our main goal in life. When you live for pleasure for yourself, in the end, you're going to be filled with regrets. Wasted life. Illnesses as a result of the party life. Ruined relationships, loss of family. The Bible says we've been created to bring joy to the Lord. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. If your goal and my goal is not to bring glory to God, then it's a lesser goal. And it can never bring a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Because it's a lesser goal. In giving pleasure to the Lord, we fulfill the deepest and most basic needs of our own lives. We need to be wise to join Paul in agreeing, as he said here, for me to live is Christ. That is, living means living for Christ. Paul says, I'm only living for Jesus. He says, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As a father lay dying, he said to his son, there's nothing to dying, son. It's the living that matters. We can't die a righteous life unless we live a righteous life. And the Bible warns us many times that death is not the end. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. The honor, I should say the horror of the, of the white throne judgment is waiting for the lost. You know, if you're not saved, what's waiting for you is the white throne judgment. Death for them is not gain. It will be indescribable suffering and torment. Eternal loss is waiting for them. Because they live without Christ, they will die without Christ. Believers, Christians will face the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus is going to judge the motives 
of Christians. Why did they do the things that they did as a Christian? So Paul's purpose in life was to glorify Jesus, so he knew what to expect with joy. The Lord has told us these things, that you know what, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to go through these things. And because, and because he's told us, and like Paul, we can expect it, you know, what to expect with joy, because it's a part of God's plan. No, no enemy could intimidate Paul. No, no, no man could fear him. No man could torment him. Because it was Jesus and not Nero that fulfilled his vision. Verse 22 and 23. Paul says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So these verses here make it clear that Paul was kind of frustrated. See, he knew that if he went on living, there would definitely be fruit from his labor. It would be beneficial for the, those that were still living. God would bless his work. God would continue to use him like he had in the past. But he said, if I had my choice between living or dying for Jesus, he was at a loss at, to, at, at how to decide. I'm so conflicted about that. He says, for me to stay here, I'm going to help the, my fellow Philippians. I'm going to help my fellow Christians. But man, to go to be with the Lord, ah, oh, man, that would be awesome. He simply didn't know which to choose. But here's the thing, the choice wasn't up to him anyway. Paul was distressed. He was hard-pressed, he says, to know which would bring the most glory to God. And that's how we should base our decisions. What will bring the most glory to God? What would be best for everybody else in the long run? His personal desire, verse 23 says, to depart and be with Christ. He knew this would be way better than staying here. Because staying here would mean more persecutions, more pain, more suffering, or other hardships. But he also knew the Philippians need me here. Verse 24 through 26. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Verse 26, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul wasn't selfish in this difficulty. He submitted to the need of the Philippians. Paul, Paul made helping the Philippian believers his highest priority. That was more important to him than his leaving or more needed than his leaving. Secondly, his coming to the Philippians again in verse 26 to help them was going to cost him. It was going to cost him plenty. It would cost him a lot more labor and a lot more persecution, but he was willing to do it. He was willing to pay the price to do God's will. But the fruit of it, the fruit of Paul submitting to staying to help the Philippians with spiritual benefits for the Philippian believers. Then in verses 27 through 30, we have Paul and his message. Look at verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul is suggesting here that we Christians are the citizens of heaven. And while we're here on earth, we should, again, 
behave like heaven citizens? And, and that's a question we need to ask ourselves all the time. Am I behaving myself in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Paul said we should walk worthy of our calling that we have in Christ, which means fully pleasing him. We don't behave, we don't act nice and, 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 and be good so that we can get to heaven because that doesn't get us there. You know, being good and, and being nice, that doesn't get us to heaven. But we behave because our names are already written in heaven and our citizenship is there. And, and we have to remember that the, word around, the world around us only knows the gospel that it sees in our lives. You can tell them, we can tell them we have faith and we can tell them we believe in God, we believe in the Bible, but is it seen in our life? It's easy to say, but are we doers of the word of God? Verses 28 through 30. And not in a way... Not, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, notice, it's been granted to you, not, as, not, notice, not only to believe Him, but it's been granted to you to suffer for Him as well. Notice, to suffer for His sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He's saying, hey guys, don't let your enemies intimidate you in any way. The word intimidate here uh, is a picture of a horse shying away from battle. Now nobody runs blindly into a fight. But no true believer should deliberately avoid facing the enemy. Remember the armor that we, we learned about the armor of the, of, of the Christian, there was no armor for the back because we were never meant to run away. We were never intended for us to run away. So we, don't, we, 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 should, we should not you know, uh, avoid facing the enemy. Here Paul gives us several encouragements that give us confidence in the battle. First, the battles prove that we're saved, according to verse 29. We not only believe on Christ, but also suffer for him. Paul calls this the fellowship of his sufferings in Philippians 3.10. For some reason, many new believers have the idea that trusting in Jesus means no more battles. I don't know where they get that. What it really means, it's just the beginning of the new battles. Jesus gave us some promises. The Bible gives us some promises that I don't know how many of you have underlined. We only like to underline the good ones. In the world you will have, promise, John 16, 33, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But he also gave the encouragement, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. So with the promise of tribulation, you have the encouragement, he's overcome it. All that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Here's another promise, 2 Timothy three twelve. Here's another one. We must through, must, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. But the presence of conflict, believe it or not, it's a privilege. Because it's the scripture that we suffer for his sake. And it says again in verse 29, Paul tells us that, that, that this conflict note is granted to us. You know what the word granted means? As a favor, in kindness. So it's a gift to us. 
Conflict is a gift to us. If we're suffering for ourselves, that wouldn't be a privilege. But because we're suffering for and with Jesus, it's a high and holy honor. He suffered for us. So a willingness to suffer him is the least that we can do to show our love and gratitude to him. Another encouragement is this. Verse 30 says, others are experiencing the same conflict. We're all going through it. Maybe not at the same time, but we're all going through it or going to go through it. Satan wants you to think that you're all alone in the battle. Oh, nobody else is experiencing this. Just me. And he wants you to to think that, that your battle is one of a kind. Nobody else has ever gone through this. Nobody else has ever experienced this. And yet Paul says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Satan would love you to think you're the only one. Oh, woe is me. No, woe is everybody. We all go through it. That was another encouragement for Paul. He knew that his brothers and sisters were going through difficult times as well. Paul reminds the Philippians that he's going through some hardships. They're going through them, going through them too. They're just 100 miles away. I'm going through them here in Rome. You're going through them in other places. A change in locations usually does not solve spiritual problems. Why? Because human nature is the same wherever you go. A lot of times, we're the problem, and when we go, we just take it with us. We got to blame it. Oh, it's that, it's this, it's that. No, it's, it's me. Everywhere you go, the enemy is there. Knowing that, Paul said, knowing that my fellow believers are also sharing in the battle, man, that's an encouragement for me to keep going and to pray for them when I pray for myself. Actually going through spiritual battle is one way that we have to grow in Christ. That's why it's a gift. That's why it's a part of God's plan, to help us grow in Christ. It helps us to to get the strength we need to stand strong against the enemy. And then this confidence proves to Paul, he says that, that, you know, that, uh, well, I'm sorry, the confidence that we have because of Christ proves to Satan that that he's going to lose because we're on the winning side. The Philippians had seen Paul go through conflict conflict when, when he was with them. They had witnessed his steadfastness in the Lord through that conflict. And the word conflict here gives us our word agony. And it's the same word that's used for Jesus when he was struggling in the garden. He was praying. He was agonizing in prayer. So much though he sweat great, great drops of blood. Agonizing in prayer. So as we face the enemy and we depend upon the Lord, he gives us all that we need for the battle. And when the enemy sees the confidence our Lord gives us, it makes the enemy fear. So the single mind and the undivided heart enables us to have joy in the midst of the battle. Again, Jesus came that we might have joy. Again, kind of a early Christmas Eve message. It's, it's right here. 
the joy that we have in Christ. And so again, it, it just, you know, the, 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 Ebony sees that confidence and he fears. And so again, the single-minded, undivided heart helps us to have that joy in the middle of the battle because it produces in us, in us a consistency, a teamwork, and a confidence. And we experience the joy of spiritual teamwork. As Paul went through it, so did his brothers and sisters. It was a team effort kind of a thing. And as we go out all together for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we experience that joy of being in the battle together, helping one another, praying for one another, sharing one another's burdens. And that's what, that's what unites the church in a special way. Father, we come before you to thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. Father, for the joy that was set before you, Jesus, you endured the cross. And because conflict is a gift, it's a privilege, we can rejoice in it, Lord. And help us to submit to the difficulties in our life, God. Because they're not caused by chance. They're not caused by bad luck. They're designed, arranged by you, Lord, for our benefit and for your glory. And as we're praying, if there's anyone here this morning that has never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but recognize, I need Jesus. I want Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to know that my name is written in the book of life. As we're praying, if there's anyone here who wants to receive Christ as their Lord, just lift up your hand real quick and then put it back down. It just takes a simple prayer of faith. Anybody at all? Father, we thank you again for this beautiful morning, for your beautiful word, God. And Father, we pray that now as we go our way, God, that you would just bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. And Father, I pray that we will be back, back tonight, God, to hear your word, the blessed word regarding Christmas, Lord, and our Savior. We thank you for the offering we'll receive today, Father. Thank you for, again for taking care of us and uh, for always taking care of us, God. So again, be with my brothers and sisters. May they have a wonderful day. And uh, if they can't make it tonight, and I know many people have plans and, and for traveling, watch over them, bless them, Lord. And um, may they just have a joyous Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we invite you back tonight, 6 o'clock.